0: That's what I saw when I looked at the schedule. OK, we're going to pick up right where we left off last time, talking about the classical description of absorption. Uh, Before I do that, were there any questions from last time? OK, then um, this is where we left off. I'm just going to finish the derivation we were on, so that then I can recap the entire thing. the entire classical electron oscillator model which is what this this analysis is called and I'll recap it once we've we've completed the analysis so we had derived an expression for the displacement of an electron or we could generalize that to be uh, part of a molecule that's being driven by an external electric field and that expression is a function of the natural frequency of that electron so it's natural frequency to slosh back and forth if it's disturbed from equilibrium it's a function of the frequency that we drive it at and it's a function of the amount of damping we have so gamma represented the amount of damping and we said that this complex phasor representation could be used to determine the real part, the real part of that would give us uh, the function for the displacement as a function of time. And so when we took the real part of this, we get this expression here. So the displacement is a cosinusoidally varying oscillation. And if it's driven by a wave that looks like cosine omega t, then the response of the material has a phase lag. And that phase lag, we can calculate it's just gonna be the argument of this function the argument of that complex number So I think that's where we left off last time so the reason we care about the displacement of the electron or the motion of the molecule is that we can use it to calculate how much power is absorbed from that wave and that's really what we're after is determining an absorption profile Okay. so the absorbed power is given by the force on an object times its velocity. That's what we have here. We have an object. We have a charged particle that's moving because it's being pushed by an electromagnetic field. So we have a force acting on it and we have a velocity. The velocity we can calculate, uh, it's a trivial calculation, from our expression for the displacement. The displacement looked like this. And when you take the time derivative, which is what the velocity is, it's the time derivative of a displacement. So if we take the time derivative of a phasor, we just multiply that phasor by I omega. Right, that was one of our phasor shortcuts. So multiplying our expression for the displacement by I omega, this now is a velocity. The force pushing on our charged particle is just the electric force from the electric field. So if it has a charge of E, Actually, I should say a charge of minus E. And If it's an electron, its charge would be minus E. The electric field is the amount of force per unit charge. So this term here is the force. Force dotted with velocity. And for this analysis, we're assuming that the displacement of the charge is in the direction of the electric, the electric field. So I think we're describing both of these as being in the X direction. So this dot product will just be a product. So, what we have is the product of two quantities with a time average. So, we talked last time about how to do a time average of the product of two phasors. It's just uh, the first, one half the first times the complex conjugate of the second. If we do that, that one half gets picked up right here. And essentially, we have this e-phasor to this this e-phasor gives us the amplitude of the electric field squared and then all the other terms in here just come right up from there. And this is written... This is now in a real form. And it was the time average. So it was a product of a phasor times a complex conjugate. Um, and that gave us a real quantity. Okay, so you can see that the denominator now is real. It doesn't have this I in it. Okay, So this is the absorbed power. And you'll notice that it's a function of frequency. It's a function of omega, the frequency of the wave that we're driving it at. So that is what's responsible for the shape of the spectral line. We say that light is going to be absorbed by this matter and produce some absorption spectrum, some shape to the uh, distribution of absorption as a function of frequency. This is where it comes from. So let's look at what that shape looks like. Um, I plotted it here. We can understand the shape if we factor out some of the constants. So let me write it on the board with the constants factored out. And factor the numerator out. In the denominator, I'm going to divide everything by gamma squared omega squared. So I can write the expression like that. The reason I do that is because this function here is a common function or a common form found in physics. A function that has the form 1 over 1 plus x squared is called a Lorentzian function. And that's what we have here. So if I plot what that looks like, let me just look at the the simple Lorentzian function here and plot that. First of all, it's an even function. So it's symmetric around x equals zero. So I'll just plot the positive side and then I'll mirror that to get the the negative side. At x equals zero, this has magnitude of one. And then as x increases, when x is large, it becomes, this one becomes insignificant and it falls off like one over x squared. So it's gonna asymptotically approach 1 over x squared. And therefore, we can draw it like that. A couple things we might want to know about this function is how wide is this distribution? And so we can describe the full width half max as the distance. between the points where the function is half of its full width. So we can set this equal to one-half. So obviously we need to have one plus x squared equal to two at the uh, halfway points. So. x squared has to equal 1. So the full width half max of this function is 2. Those are just properties of Lorentzian functions. So relating those properties back to our expression can ask what's the full width half max of this spectral line. So first thing to notice is our function is we're looking at a function of omega but it's not centered around zero, it's centered around omega naught. So the center of this absorption line is at some frequency omega naught, the natural frequency of the oscillator, and then we can ask what the, the line width is, and we can say that... Um, we're replacing x with, let me call it delta-omega over gamma omega. Okay, so if the full width half max of this one, it's written as a function of x, is 2, we can say that That 2 has to equal the value of this expression when we plug in a value of omega that takes us to the full width half max. So I want to solve this for what omega 1 half is. And to do that, I'm going to make a simplification. And I'll motivate that by factoring out this difference of squares. I'll write that as omega naught minus omega times omega naught plus omega. 2 is the width of this Lorentzian function. It's the width of the Lorentzian function when it's written as 1 over 1 plus x squared. The, the, the function decreases to 1 half of its maximum value at plus 1 and at minus 1. So its, it's width is 2. Now, there's, this is a unitless function here. It's just a function of x. Um, our function that we're interested in has some more complicated expression here instead of x so we're just going to relate this complicated expression to 2 and then solve for the parameter that we're interested in using to describe the full width f max okay so I'm going to assume that there's a number of ways of saying this it's the small damping approximation but I'm going to assume that this line width is small compared to the center frequency. And what that means is that this term here, what is that term approximately equal to? Just two omega naught. Um, I no.
1: mean
0: Something's not, that's not the case. That's not equal to two omega now, which is messing up my train of thought. Um, Oh, this is, I'm sorry. That is approximately equal to 2 omega-naught. Let me explain, in case anyone was confused, the same way I was. Um, This is omega-naught right here. This is omega one-half. And uh, I was, for whatever reason, I was thinking this width was omega one-half? It's not. It's an absolute frequency. This is omega one-half. This is omega, say, minus one-half. And they're both approximately the same as omega-naught. So that's about 2 omega-naught. cancel. The omega-naught is approximately equal to the omega-1-half and I get gamma is equal to omega-naught minus omega-1-half. Which is different than what I've got up here, isn't it? No, that's right. That's right. Oh, you were the end Why can't we just do it like algebraically and move the yam omega half over and then add omega half squared you can do it that way. And I will do it that way if I get stuck. Yeah, okay. Here's the problem. The full width half max is two. But what I'm calculating up here is not the full width half max. Omega naught minus omega one half is the distance from here to here, which is half of that width. So half of that full width half max is one, not two. So, right, gamma equals two. Yeah. And that's cons. This looks like it has an error. Oh no, that's right. Yeah, okay. So what this tells me is the, this quantity right here twice the distance from the half power point to the maximum that's the full width half max. This term in parentheses is the half width. So this is the full width half max, and it's equal to gamma. So that term that was our damping determines how wide that spectral line is. If there's no damping; this would be a delta function. It'd have zero width, which kind of makes sense if you think about it. There's no damping, we have an oscillator that will oscillate indefinitely with a given frequency. So it will have a, uh, a perfectly well-defined frequency and therefore um, or it will go on for an indefinite length of time, therefore it will have a perfectly well-defined frequency. If it decays in some amount of time, then there has to be some width to the frequency just by the Heisenberg uncertainty relationship. And this is what we're seeing here. Okay, so a short, um, a, sh- a small amount of damping means it will oscillate for a long period of time. It'll have a narrow frequency band. Um, a large amount of damping means it will decay very rapidly. And it'll have a large Fourier spectrum. And that will show up here as a wide absorption line. Okay, so this is a plot absorbed power as a function of of the incident frequency. And that's what we wanted to show. We wanted to use this, this model of the light, the matter, and their interaction to figure out what the shape of an absorption line would be, and we've done that. So I'll just now go back and review. We started by treating an atom as basically being a mass on a spring. It's an oscillator, a simple harmonic oscillator, and whether that I say atom, whether it's a molecule where its bonds are being disturbed and it's vibrating, or whether it's an electron around a a nucleus and its electron cloud is sloshing back and forth, um, we treated it as a mass on a spring. And then when it was driven by an electric field, we were able to compute the displacement of that mass just by using the, uh, treating it as a driven harmonic oscillator. So the same way that uh, you would calculate a spring's displacement as you shook the top of the spring up and down, we were able to compute the displacement of the atom. And from that, we determined the power that was dissipated in the electric field by the moving charge. Took the force of the electric field times the velocity associated with this moving charge, calculated that power, we plot it as a function of frequency, and we can say its center is the natural frequency of the oscillation and its width is the amount of damping. So that tells us a lot about the matter that the light's going through. So for example, the, uh, remember we started with this potential well for the potential energy of the atom or molecule as a function of our, uh, our spatial coordinate in which we are stretching the molecule. Okay, so the center wavelength, omega naught, tells us about the curvature of this well. The curvature of that well was the spring constant for that simple harmonic oscillator. So by measuring the frequency of oscillation, you can determine the uh, spring constant. The line width was this damping factor, gamma, and that's going to tell us... um, So if we measure how fast... This, uh, if we measure that line width we get a sense of how fast the upper state of the atom decays to the lower state so we're going to use that today to relate this classical model to a quantum mechanical description of the atom where we talk about the upper and lower states and the transition probabilities and transition rates between the states and this term gamma will be analogous to one of the terms that we derived today. And then finally the peak absorbed power, which was this term right here, the power absorbed on the center of the absorption line tells us a little bit about some of our assumptions. So, for instance, we assumed that our molecules were aligned to the direction of the electric field. So that when the electric field pushed on them, it was able to stretch them out uh, maximally. But if they're not uniformly aligned, then the amount of power that will be absorbed is less than what we have calculated. And so we could, for instance, determine the average uh, angle of the polarization of these molecules relative to the polarization of the wave by comparing our measured maximum absorbed power to our theoretical maximum absorbed power. those are just some of the things that go into calculating the absorption profile so therefore when you measure the absorption profile those are some of the things you can back out now that's for a single a single oscillator we want to generalize this now to a whole series of oscillators meaning bulk matter we've got some some macroscopic material that has many many atoms in it each atom itself may have multiple oscillators. Okay, So if you don't like that term, think of a molecule and the different parts of the molecule having different oscillators, each with its own resonant frequency and its own sort of absorption profile. So to do this, we're going to use some of the parameters that describe bulk matter. This P is the polarization of the material. Polarization of material is... For a single single oscillator, we talked about the displacement of the charge. If you have a bulk material, this polarization is the sum of all those displacements. And so a bunch of charges that are being displaced produce an electric field, right? And when that adds to the externally applied electric field, so the wave that's in here, we get what we call an electric displacement, okay? So the... E field is the electric field, the D field is the electric displacement. It accounts for the external electric field that you would have in free space plus any additional field you have due to the matter being polarized by that. Okay, So we're going to use this notion of the electric displacement and we're going to define the polarization as being the displacement of a single oscillator times the charge of that oscillator that gives us a uh, that gives us a dipole moment times the number of oscillators per unit volume so this this has to do with the density of the material and then this has to do with the response of each individual atom or molecule in the material and the negative sign just takes into account that we're dealing with single electrons as our oscillators they're going to be negatively charged so there would be a negative charge due to that. Okay, so we can take this expression for the polarization, we can plug it in there. And I'll just note that this, P is polarization, it's not power. And we were talking about P is absorbed power on the previous slides. Okay, so plugging in this expression for the polarization, into my electric displacement. We can then define the susceptibility of the material to be the amount of polarization produced by a given electric field. Okay, so when an electric field is applied, it induces this polarization. How much of it, it induces depends on material property called the atomic susceptibility. So now we'll compare this expression for the electric displacement to the form of the electric displacement that is epsilon times E. Epsilon is the permittivity of a material. And the permittivity of a material accounts for the permittivity of free space plus that of the material. And that that of the material part is chi. So epsilon is epsilon-naught and chi, wrapped up in one. And what we're going to want to derive is the index of refraction for the material. That's typically the parameter that describes uh, how the material affects light propagating in it. So the index of refraction, I know there's a lot of different terms we're introducing here, but they're all going to come together in a minute. The index of refraction is the speed of light in free space divided by that in the material. In free space, the speed of light is 1 over the square root of epsilon-naught mu-naught. In the material, it's 1 over the square root of epsilon-mu. Okay, so we can write the index for a fraction as epsilon mu, square root of epsilon-mu over epsilon-naught mu-naught. And now, almost all materials that we're going to deal with, or certainly all the ones that we're going to deal with in this class, most materials you would deal with in a laboratory or um, in a company, are going to be non-magnetic. So this mu and the mu-naught, mu is equal to mu-naught. Those terms cancel. So we can say n equals square root of epsilon over epsilon naught. Okay, so relating this expression for the electric displacement to this expression, epsilon is epsilon naught times one plus chi. So the index of refraction. The square root of and the epsilon knots cancel 1 plus chi, which is what we have right here. Okay, now we can say something about what the index of refraction looks like because if we look back at our definition of chi, this polarization is a function of the displacement, which we've already calculated and the applied electric field, which was a parameter in that displacement. So let's do that. Let's calculate the index of a fraction. We're going to do this far from an atomic resonance. What that means is that chi is small compared to 1. And we'll see the result of that in a minute when we plot our results. Um, That basically means in transparent material. Where there's low absorption. So if chi is much smaller than 1, then we can do a Taylor series expansion of square root of 1 plus chi and write that as 1 plus chi over 2. So we can deal with the square root that way. So higher order terms are going to be negligible why this is a, just an approximation. And I can plug in my values here and my 1 plus 1 half chi. Chi is n times e times the displacement over epsilon naught e. So this is the polarization up here divided by epsilon naught e. I have an expression for the displacement we calculated last time, and I'll plug that in for my delta x, you'll see that it depends on the strength of the driving field, e, so there's going to be a, an e in the numerator, there's an e in the denominator, they cancel out, and this is what I'm left with. But uh, X into X was X not plus Delta X, and um, this X not was time independent <laughs> and didn't vary. At all, as as the uh, electric field moved the charges around. Um, so if we included this, that would provide an additional term. Yeah, we could we could include that x naught, and we'd have an additional term there. Um I can make a hand wavy argument why it's not necessary, which I'll go ahead and do. So that if you have matter made up of a, a whole bunch of oscillators and they're all uniform or they're randomly oriented, then this delta x is the response due to a A driving electric field and the driving electric field is going to push them all in the same direction but this x-naught this initial displacement would be randomly oriented and they would cancel out when you add up over a large number of them now that's very hand wavy and I don't know that it makes too much sense to be more specific than that because in practice um, this x-naught was sort of the equilibrium position of our atom or molecule, and we never really we're not doing this for a specific geometry, not for a specific atom or a specific molecule, this could be a bond length, it could be an average electron radius, it could be a number of different things um, but at equilibrium our, everything should be in equilibrium and there should be no um, no electric dipole moment or a neutral atom. Well, as a charge gets displaced, that charge produces some additional electric field. Um, and that additional electric field is what the index of refraction, in a sense, measures. The index of refraction measures, you can say it as the speed of light in the material versus relative to the speed of light in vacuum, or you can say it as the strength of the internal electric field in a material due to that which would be there if it were just a vacuum. We tend to to call it uh, epsilon, the the relative permittivity of a material, is how strong the internal uh, electric field is relative to the driving electric field, and epsilon is just n squared, so they're equivalent. Another way of saying it is, I said that uh, when an electric field excites an oscillator and drives it, that there was a phase shift. Um, The very first slide we saw there was a phase shift beta. If there's a phase shift, that means there's a delay, that means the wave is traveling slower, in the material than it would in free space and the index of refraction is a measurement of that. I'll think about it, see if I can come up with a better answer for why there is no X-naught there. In practice, I just forgot to put the X-naught there and it doesn't affect our results. Okay, so we plug in this expression for the displacement of the molecule and we get this expression. One thing to note here, this is complex. So, what does it mean to have a complex index of refraction? Yeah, it's the same thing. It means there's absorption. Okay, So we'll show that. So first let's, let's consider the real part of the index of refraction, which is what people typically think of when they talk about an index of refraction. Um, here's that expression let me separate it into the real and imaginary parts so what I'll do is I'll multiply the numerator and the denominator by the complex conjugate of the denominator so this term in brackets on the left is the real part so I just have 1 plus 1 over 2 epsilon naught sum and then you see the denominator has been rationalized and the numerator has been multiplied by omega naught minus omega plus I gamma omega. And that I gamma omega is this term over here which is the imaginary part. I've separated it into real and imaginary parts. I've done a couple other things here that I should point out. I've generalized this to allow multiple unique oscillators so N was the number of oscillators per unit volume that had a resonant frequency omega-naught. And now I'll say that I can have oscillators that have different frequencies. Okay, Maybe I've got a gas that has different species in it, or maybe I've got a molecule where there are different types of electronic transitions in the same molecule, each one with its own resonant frequency. So N sub J is the number of Oscillators that have a resonant frequency omega-not-j. And we'll assume that those oscillators each have a charge of Q-sub-j and a mass of M-sub-j. Neil? Is that the same logic
1: for like, if it was all hydrogen? Well, so like if
0: it was all... only, like, resonate at one frequency? No, you could, have, you could have other frequencies as well. So, like, it's not only, like, different molecules, Okay, so um, so we've got the sum over J, and now let's plot this. Let's plot the real part of this first, over here. So I did this uh, with several different, several different resonant frequencies. This plot, I just basically set all these terms equal to one, I think the, the damping was 0.1, and then I put in for resonant frequencies one, two, three, and four. So here's a resonant frequency at 1, here's a resonant frequency at 2, at 3, and at 4. And every time it goes through a resonance, the index of a fraction has this rapidly varying behavior. Okay, and as you see... Um, Gamma determines the line width. Still, so The line width of this would be measured, say, from the peak to the, the minimum, right there. And as the frequency increases, far away from resonances, which is, after all, where we assumed we were when we uh, did the Taylor series expansion, the index of refraction is increasing. Because it's increasing from the big dip at the lower resonant frequency up to the peak at the higher resonant frequency. So in between atomic resonances, the index of refraction is increasing with frequency. So that's sort of our first result. That, or I guess that's our second result. The first was the profile of the absorption line. That tells us what happens when you're not near an absorption line. It says that the material is dispersive. And we call that normal dispersion. So most materials that are transparent actually all materials that are transparent are normally dispersive okay, so glass for instance has a higher index for blue light than it does for red light and that's why a prism made of glass will separate light based on, on wavelength That's true when you have dispersion. What this is just, all this is saying is, um, so let's look at our expression for an electric field in a material. Our electric field propagating as a wave looks like some amplitude times e to the i k dot r plus omega t. And we said that k was the wave vector. In vacuum, we can call that K-naught, it's 2pi over the vacuum wavelength. In a material, it's N times K-naught. Okay, now, we have this complex representation of N. If we plug it in here, the real part of N just multiplies by K-naught and affects the uh, wavelength, essentially the wavelength of the wave. The imaginary part, as we're about to see, and as you mentioned, has an imaginary term that multiplies by this imaginary term and gives us an e to the minus something, which is decay. Okay. So the imaginary term would be a term over here that has an exponentially decaying amplitude. So only looking at the real term, um, the effect of n is to change the velocity of light propagating through the material because the term in front of r you see the term in front of t which is omega divided by the term in front of r which is k omega over k is the speed of light okay now the term in front of the term in front of r has a frequency dependent coefficient okay so the index of refraction the speed of light is frequency dependent is what this is saying and far away from an absorption line the index is always increasing as a function of frequency and that's called normal dispersion okay so all materials have that because all materials have atomic resonances Um, and typically typically the first atomic resonance for a material um, will be in the infrared or actually there may be a number in the infrared um, the first electronic resonance, which would be a transition of an electron to a higher energy state, would be in the infrared, and then there's actually one in the uh, ultraviolet for what, what we would consider an optical material, which leaves the region in between is the visible region, and that's where um, we typically think of the optic as being transparent, and it will have this normal dispersion. So we use prisms, to separate the different frequencies of light in a spectrometer. Light goes in, different frequencies get bent by different amounts because of Snell's law, and because the index of refraction is frequency dependent. So if you want the light to get split more, so that you have a better resolving instrument, how can you increase the dispersion? So dispersion is the slope of this line. Yeah, you can work closer to a resonance. What we'll see is as you do that, you start to get more and more absorption. so The material becomes less and less transparent. So there's really no net gain. You could just as equally go through more material to get more dispersion. So if this is normal dispersion where the slope of this line is positive. What would anom- uh, anomalous dispersion be? Any thoughts? Negative. It's where the slope is negative. And that occurs within the absorption line width. So when something is absorbing, it has negative dispersion. So there's all sorts of applications where you might want to compensate for the dispersion. If you're doing ultra-fast optics, and I'm not going to get into the reasons for this, but if you're doing ultra-fast optics with short pulses, dispersion is a real problem and it screws up your pulses. It'd be great to put in something with negative dispersion. You can do that, and you end up absorbing your pulse in the process of doing that. You you said that uh you don't line so are we like putting a uh Lorenzian on that semi handling feature? Yeah, let me open the uh, original file here that has this graph on it so that I can show the, the graph side by side. Okay, so here's the function that I plotted. I told you I basically took all the the, uh, constants and set them to unity, except for the resonant frequencies. I have a resonant frequency of 1, of 2, of 3, and of 4. And here's the resonance at 1, at 2, at 3, and 4. And I didn't draw the graph lines on here, but this is on a scale one, two, three, four. 1, 2, 3, 4. And so this is the real part of the index of refraction, and then this is the imaginary part. So you'll see that those uh, absorption lines are centered right on the the, the anomalous dispersion regions. Okay. And in fact, you can show mathematically that the full width half max of this line is equal to the value from the maximum to the minimum of this one. Okay, so that was the real part of the index. We had a complex index, so there's an imaginary part. If We let the index have a real part and an imaginary part, and now instead of carrying along all those terms and that complicated expression, let me just do a little math where I talk about the real and imaginary parts explicitly. Then in my expression for a traveling wave, where I have this n, I'm gonna replace that by n prime plus i n double prime. And so, as I mentioned last time, The real part just sits there and does what it does. The imaginary part has an i that multiplies by this i. And I'll factor that out, and that's a negative real quantity in the exponent. So that exponent is an exponential decay. So that's an exponential decay that affects this amplitude. now if I have exponential decay then I probably want to relate this quantity which is responsible for it into something that's more familiar frequently we talk about an absorption coefficient defined by this equation the gradient in the intensity the change in the intensity as light propagates is proportional to the intensity times an absorption coefficient okay so this is the intensity exponentially decays at e to the I, or e to the minus alpha x as it propagates in the x-direction. It's all that same. Okay, so we have an expression for n. And the intensity we can write is 1 half n epsilon c e squared. That's just the relationship between the electric field and the intensity. So plugging in those values, I'll use the real part of the index of refraction as n, And for the amplitude of the field, I have this exponential decay from up here. And because I'm taking that field and I'm squaring it, I have e to the minus 2 n double prime k not r, instead of e to the minus 1 n double prime k not r. So this right here is my exponential decay. And this, the the 2 n double prime k not, that's the absorption coefficient. So that's stated right here, the absorption coefficient is 2 n double prime k naught in the direction of propagation. So I can write that out now, substituting in the imaginary part of the index, which I had derived a few slides ago. So substitute that in, get an expression for the absorption coefficient in terms of these uh, material properties. so that is a, um, a quantity which depends on the material there's another term called the cross section which is like the absorption sort of per unit molecule it's a it's an atomic property as opposed to a material property so we'll use that quite a bit so we need a picture for how those two things relate okay, so let's say we have some intensity coming into a bulk material here, and each dot represents a molecule, then as the intensity, as the light travels the distance delta z, there's a certain amount of intensity that gets lost, delta i, due to absorption. We can calculate that from our um, our expression that has the absorption coefficient in it, or we can say the amount of intensity that's lost is due to all these particles and if we treat each one as being a sphere that has a cross-sectional area of sigma here and we treat this this object um, as having some finite size i'll call it for the sake of argument a rectangular cross-section or a square cross-section of unit length l then if i take the number of particles contained in this volume of my material and I say each one has a cross-sectional area of sigma and they're all spaced out in that material so that none are hiding behind the others Then the amount of intensity that I would lose in that picture is just the fractional area occupied by all these opaque spheres divided by the total area that the light's propagating through, right? So, um, let's see, if N is the number of atoms per unit volume, and L squared delta Z, that's the amount of volume that I'm propagating through. This is the number of atoms that the light will encounter. This is the cross-sectional area of each one. So this is how much of that region is opaque to the light and in the denominator that's how much of the region the light is going through so this is this term in brackets is the fractional amount of this area the light's propagating through that's opaque so if i multiply that by the intensity that tells me how much intensity i'm going to lose delta i and the negative sign tells me that i'm losing intensity Okay, so um, writing this, we can write this as delta i over delta z by di- dividing both sides by delta z. And I have sigma n, the L squareds cancel out, times i z. So I have this expression, delta i over delta z. So I'll take the limit as delta z gets small. Now, di dz is minus sigma n i. And if you recall in the last slide, I said the absorption coefficient was defined by di dz equals minus alpha i z. Okay, so apparently alpha, the absorption coefficient, is equal to sigma times n. Okay, so if alpha is the absorption coefficient, and there are n molecules per unit volume, then the absorption coefficient per molecule You could think of as alpha divided by n. So the cross-section is like the amount of absorption per molecule. And it's useful because it's an atomic property. So it's not a function of the material, it's a function of what the material is made up of. So it's not going to depend up to a point, it's not going to depend on density or temperature or a number of the other things that would affect the uh, spacing of the molecules. Neil? yeah that's a good question Um, well this isn't a couple things this is the sort of image that we use to derive this relationship and this definition of what sigma is now in reality that's not necessarily the case if you have an inhomogeneous material or a Um, an inhomogeneous material where the density is low if you have a gas this is probably a reasonable assumption if you have a solid or a crystal then this assumption breaks down and that relationship is not as straightforward okay so a little bit of review then we were able to calculate the absorption profile or the uh, absorption coefficient by looking at the imaginary part of the index of refraction we figured out the index of refraction from our knowledge of the electronic displacement and our definition for the polarization for chi and the electric displacement Okay, so we've got this expression for the material and we can relate that to the uh, absorption cross section and there's a factor of 2 there that was not in the previous slide so let me cross that out Um, so what's useful and I didn't mention this in the review slide but I didn't mention it if you have a cross section that's an area it's the area, effective area of a molecule If you have a number density, that's the number of molecules per unit volume. So the product of those is inverse of length. It's the length over which you need to go, essentially, for all of the light to be absorbed. Or when I say all of, some reasonable fraction of the light to be absorbed. So the the product of a cross-section and a number density gives you the spatial interaction length, or 1 over the spatial interaction length. So if you're interested in how far light will penetrate into a material, you can take the product of those two quantities and you get some estimate of how far it will go. Okay. Um, what we're going to do now, or what we're going to start now, is relating these quantities to some more quantum mechanical... Or, or, uh, some properties that are going to be relevant when we think about individual atoms and the quantum mechanics of the atoms. So we'll talk about the probability of an atom being excited from a lower state to an upper state instead of talking about the amount of power absorbed. We will then use the expressions that we get to relate some of those classical things like the line width, gamma, Um, and the resonant frequency omega-naught to some quantum mechanical properties like the coefficient of stimulated absorption and stimulated emission and the coefficient of spontaneous emission. Uh, We'll finish this discussion next time, but uh, we can start it now. Okay, so we're just saying that if you have a slab of area A and length delta X, that the amount of power absorbed is just the intensity times the area, that gives me the amount of power incident, times the uh, absorption coefficient, sigma n. Okay, so ai is the incident power, sigma n is the absorption coefficient, that's how much power is absorbed in a distance delta x, so I can write that as dp dx. So I'm going to start with that and derive the probability for an atom to be excited into an upper state. So it'll be useful to describe the total number of atoms in that volume and I'll use the script n to represent the total number of atoms as opposed to the number per unit volume. So then I can say that the area of my material, the cross-sectional area times the distance through which I'm propagating, this is a volume the number of atoms per unit volume times that volume is the total number of atoms interacting with my light. So I can write the change in power is the total number of interactions times the cross-sectional area of a single atom times the intensity. Now, if all that power that's lost is due to excitations of low energy states in the material to higher energy states in, discrete, in uh, discrete transitions then I can write all this power being lost as some number of discrete transitions each of a given energy. Okay, So if my material has discrete energy states then going from the ground state or a lower state to a higher state a certain quantity of energy will be absorbed, that quantity is h nu, and nu is going to be the frequency of the light that is absorbed, the frequency of the photon that's absorbed to drive that interaction. So if that's the case, then I can talk about the probability per unit time that a transition will occur from a low state to a high state. So the probability per unit time times the amount of energy Associated with that transition gives me the amount of energy per unit time. Energy per unit time is a power. Right, so the power being absorbed is equal to the probability that each atom has a transition per unit time times the probability that this isn't each atom, this is that there is a transition from a lower state to a higher state, times the amount of energy absorbed by that. And that has to equal my expression for the change in power that I had here. So I can divide both sides by H nu and get an expression for the probability per unit time that there's a transition from a low energy state to a high energy state. In terms of the incident intensity, the number of molecules, the cross-section, and the frequency of the wave. So if I can send photons in and have some of them get absorbed and kick an atom into a higher energy state, time reversal symmetry tells me I can start with um, fewer number of photons, and an atom in an excited state, and have that excited state atom decay to a lower state, and give off a photon. So, just as I calculated the probability of a transition from low state to a high state, I can also calculate the transition probability from a high state to a low state. So from state 2 to state 1, I'm going to get the same expression, except it's going to depend not on the number of molecules in state 1, it's going to depend on the number of molecules in state 2. And what we're going to see is that this tells me a bit about the um, absorption in the material, and this tells me about the stimulated emission in the material. So where do you hear the term stimulated emission? Yes, so light amplified by stimulated emission of radiation. This is the operating principle behind a laser. And in a laser, if you have more atoms in the upper state than you have in the lower state, then you have more transitions going down, giving off photons, than you have transitions where a photon is absorbed, and you have optical gain. And that's what happens inside of a laser. So these expressions are going to be important for understanding laser operation. Um, and it'll also be under- important for us to understand how to prepare materials and get them into various uh, energy states. Yes? So DP uh, is not change in probability, right? It's what? what it is a change, but change in the Well. P is the probability per unit time that an atomic transition occurs in a material. And I have to be a little careful. I have to fix this. Here I was calling it dp, dt and in the next slide I just call it P. So I should probably just call that P, probability per unit time. So little p is a probability per unit time that a transition occurs in the material. Capital P will be the probability that a transition occurs in a single state, in a single atom. And so they're gonna be they're gonna be related by the number of atoms. So if each atom has a probability of a transition of capital P, when I multiply it by the number of atoms, I get the total probability of a transition occurring somewhere in the material. I don't like this notation. I probably would have called little p the probability for a single atom, and big P the probability for the entire material. But um, the book by uh, uh, by uh, Andrew's book, what was the name? Uh, Andrews and Demidov, I was going to say Demtroder instead of Demidov, uses this notation. And I'm following chapter two in that textbook here. So I'm using the notation that's consistent with that. So these probabilities that a transition occurs in a single atom are very closely related to what's called the Einstein coefficients of emission and absorption. There's an Einstein coefficient of stimulated emission and spontaneous emission. And there's an Einstein coefficient of absorption. Uh, So next time we'll derive how these probabilities are related to those properties. Any questions from today? Let me just leave you with one comment. Um, Right now, the class is fairly mathematical, and it's gonna be this way for about the next two weeks, okay? maybe three weeks. We're discussing the fundamentals that we need to understand before we go on and talk about applications and some of the properties and, and methods in laser spectroscopy. It's not gonna stay this way, okay? It might get a little bit worse before it gets better. Or it might get a little more mathematical before it gets less. But a month from now, we will probably not be doing any math at all. So if if you're concerned about this or wondering where the class is going, um, it's not going to be like this the whole time.